This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, embryo freezing for infertile couples has been sold as safer and offering a higher take-home baby rate. But is that true? New findings question that. Gout is on the rise, with Australia having one of the highest rates in the world. What's going on and what are the similarities between gout and COVID-19? One of the mainstays of malaria control in our region is losing effectiveness. The big question is why? And how can communication about COVID-19 be improved to get behaviour change without having to go to lockdown? A feature of the state and federal government's responses to the pandemic has been, I suppose, a scarcity of media campaigns. And those which have emerged have tended to be pretty basic without much nuanced messaging. Can we learn anything from Australia's experience of anti-smoking and cancer prevention campaigns over the years? Professor Melanie Wakefield has an international reputation for her work in this field. Melanie is head of the Centre for Behavioural Research in Cancer at Cancer Council Victoria. Welcome back to the Health Report, Melanie. Hi, Norman. What's the evidence that any, you know, that public health campaigns can change behaviour? Uh, well, we have very good evidence uh, about that, and um, um, one of the demonstrable successes is the decline in uh, smoking in Australia and uh, the role of our hard-hitting mass media campaigns that has helped to bring that the, um, that behaviour, to change that behaviour uh, in ways that um, are unparalleled in many other countries. We'll come back to what it was in those. A lot of people in, the, in, the COVID, in talking about COVID-19 reflect back um, to the Grim Reaper campaign with HIV back in the 80s and the Health Report's audience being very young will not remember that, but essentially it was the Grim Reaper with lots of smoke coming underneath this hooded person with a scythe coming to um, car, carved swathes through the community. Did it work? Yeah, I think um, those kind of campaigns are, are really important because they harness an, um, harness an emotional element and that's very motivational for people. Um, it attracts attention, it cuts through, it gets people talking. And then once you've got their attention, you can give them uh, more information about how they can reduce their risk. And that kind of um, recipe, I suppose, is something that we've used in tobacco control and it's been really effective. Uh, and I think there's probably room for that kind of approach now in uh, messaging about COVID as well. Well, let's unpick that a little bit. Um, I mean, so what you're saying there is you beat me up emotionally and so I'm putty in your hands for the message that I should be giving up cigarettes. Uh, so that's fear, isn't it? Uh, it is. It can be fear. Um, but, um, I mean, it's not fear for the sake of it, um, if you know what I mean. It, um, I think that um, one of the things that is really important um, in messaging, in public messaging, is that people need to understand or have the threat made personally relevant for them. Um, they're not going to be able to follow rules and, and not feel inclined to follow them unless they understand um, that the risk is personally relevant to them. And so the way that uh, we have done that in tobacco control is through um, explaining how um, uh, tobacco-related disease what it's like to have a tobacco-related disease, um, showing compelling personal stories of people who are suffering, what it's, what kind of damage is done to the body. And, um, and I think that it's important that people understand that. Um, otherwise, it's very difficult for them to understand what it would be like to have that kind of condition. And similarly with COVID, um, I think that uh, we could do a bit more to help people come to an understanding of what it's like to 
uh, experience that condition. So we haven't exploited the personal story enough. What about, uh, I mean, the other technique that's used with tobacco is disgust. You show a, a tobacco, you know, some, a lung with cancer or a lung with dripping with tar. I, I assume there's probably not much scope for disgust in COVID-19. Um, I, I, I would think that that wouldn't be necessarily a favoured um, uh, pathway to go down. Um, but, I mean, up, up to now, most of the messaging has been delivered using an, a sort of an instructional rules-based approach, telling people repeatedly what to do. And I think, it, you know, um, to give government credit, um, this was quite appropriate at the beginning because everyone did need to know, to know what to do and they needed to know it quickly. Um, and I, I think that now as time goes on, though, we, we know it's going to be a longer haul. Many people still don't know anyone who's been severely affected by COVID. And so they, you, you know, you might understand that they would think, well, pr I probably won't get it or if I get it, it won't, be, it won't be serious. It only affects older or sicker people. So I think a really important um, uh, kind of place to go to with the messaging would be to move towards an emo emotional or motivational approach to make the threat of the virus much more personally relevant and real for people and then and thereby give them good reasons to follow the rules. And interestingly today, um, Victoria has just released this kind of campaign um, showing uh, people who ha have experienced covid um, and just how serious it is. So would you nuance that for young people and different communities? Uh, absolutely. It's really important to do that. Um, and there, there will be examples. Unfortunately, there are real examples um, across the board, uh, in, not just in Victoria, but of course across the population of people who have uh, um, unfortunately contracted this virus and um, and it's it's been um, it's been dreadful for them for weeks and months on end, and I think having people talk about that, even younger people, um, can can really bring um, to life what the risks might be um, for people. Do you think? Why do you think governments have not jumped on this? Um, the, 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 the really, it really has been disappointing when we've got some great creative talent in our advertising community as well as our public health community. Well, it's interesting in Victoria, they just have um, today, in fact. But it's taken them um, a while. It has taken them a while, but I would have to say that um, the circumstances have been really difficult. And this is quite unusual. I mean, normally when you're running a public health campaign, you have a segment of the population that you want to change and, and need to change. Here we've got the whole population that have to change, which is um, extraordinary. Um, so in the main, governments have relied on news media, press releases, some paid messaging as well to reinforce. But again, that's, as I say, that's been delivered using a fairly instructional style. Um, and I think that now that um, it's clear that it's going to be a longer haul, um, this is where the experience from, from public health can, can come uh, to the fore and, and really be helpful. Melanie, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Norman. Professor Melanie Wakefield is head of the Centre for Behavioural Research in Cancer at Cancer Council Victoria. And this is Ireland's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan.
One of the commonest procedures offered to infertile couples embarking on assisted reproduction, IVF, in vitro fertilization, is that once the egg is fertilized and grown into an early embryo, instead of implanting it fresh, it's frozen. Frozen embryos are said to give a higher chance of a successful live birth and are perhaps safer because higher doses of hormones are less likely to be needed. Some clinics are believed to freeze the majority, if not all, embryos. But according to a new study from Denmark, that strategy may no longer be appropriate, and it's something couples who are having trouble conceiving should be aware of. Anja Biscard-Pinjor is the Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Copenhagen. Welcome to the Health Report. Okay, thank you. Tell us about your study. Yes, our study showed that when we do freeze-all and compare it to a fresh embryo transfer, we had exactly the same pregnancy rate and live birth rate in both groups. And this was a randomised, just tell us how you did it, this was a randomised trial? Yes, it was a randomised trial with 460 women, so 230 in each group, and we showed exactly just below 30% live birth rate in both groups after fresh embryo transfer or after freeze-all, where we postponed the transfer two months. Now, one of the issues here with um, frozen embryo transfer is, and associated is something called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Which, is, which can be very unpleasant um, for, for women and a serious side effect and also reduce the chances in the end of a woman having um, a, live, a successful live birth. And people say that, that paradoxically frozen, a frozen embryo transfer is actually more natural because you don't have to stimulate the ovaries so much prior to, prior to yes. getting the egg. Yeah, precisely. When we do a frozen embryo transfer, we can actually do it in the natural cycle two months after the oocyte pickup so that the woman is not uh, stimulated with hormones in that cycle. And we have thought that the stimulation with hormones would negatively impact the endometrium and thereby the chance of implantation. The endometrium being the lining of the uterus. Exactly. So, and and thereby lowering the uh, the pregnancy rate in the fresh cycle due to the hormone stimulation. But what we looked at was women with a normal cycle. They had a regular cycle, and in these women, it seems that we should not do a freeze all, but we can easily do a fresh embryo transfer with the same chance of live birth rate. But you you also concluded that the, that frozen embryo transfer did reduce the risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome? Exactly. What we did at the study was that we had a very strict strategy on when we should cancel the fresh embryo transfer. And that was when the women had a certain number of uh, mature follicles, uh, mature eggs on the day of oocyte, uh, on the day of uh, where we do the ovulation trigger. So we cancelled the women where we could see that there was a potential risk of ovarian hyperstimulation. And so, so in other words, cancer- just to explain, what you're seeing there is an overstimulated ovary because there's lots of follicles coming to maturity that think it's just getting too hot. Exactly. So when we saw that things were getting too hot, then we cancelled the even in the, the arm where they were randomised for freeze, uh, for fresh embryo transfer, we cancelled, and that was about 10%. These women at high risk of, of ovarian hyperstimulation, they were cancelled and postponed to a freeze-all cycle. And, and with this strategy, we actually showed that we had no cases of severe ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, no admittance to hospital due to this. So 
with a strategy where you cancel if you see that things are getting too hot, then you can actually avoid uh, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. By moving to frozen embryo transfer. So what are the cost, exactly. what are the cost implications of this? For people the first cost implication you can say for the couples is the time that they will have to wait if they if we do freeze all to all people then all couples have to wait at least one to two months uh, uh, before getting pregnant or before the embryo transfer which is uh, which is time consuming of course and then there's a cost also on uh, on the freezing and thawing procedures so that adds cost to the couple and that of course, depends on your setting, uh, whether you have a private setting or a public setting. But for most people, the freezing procedures will be both time and money consuming. Why was frozen embryo transfer ever thought so good? Because I mean, it's very popular in Australia. I mean, IVF clinics yeah. here, I don't know if they've got freeze all, but it certainly freeze most. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 I think it was completely to avoid ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. But what we have shown in our study is that we can actually avoid ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome with some very strict ultrasound criteria for cancellation of the fresh embryo transfer. So we don't need to put 90% or 100% to freeze all. We can just take the 10% at a high risk of ovarian hyperstimulation and give them a freeze all. And then, of course, it was there were some smaller studies indicating that there were higher pregnancy rate in the freeze-all cycles. But with our study, it seems that in normal cycling women uh, who has their own regular menstrual cycle, we can easily do a fresh embryo transfer and also avoid ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. So what are the questions that couples should be having with their IVF specialist? I think uh, one should be very clear when you counsel the couple that you that they are counsel the couples that saying to them from the beginning, we plan for a fresh embryo transfer, but in case you have a high risk of ovarian hyperstimulation, then we will uh, postpone to a, a frozen embryo transfer. And that might be in five to 10% of the couple where that is necessary. And with that clear strategy, then the couples are prepared on how you do the things. And then they are prepared for both a fresh embryo transfer, but in case of a freeze-all cycle, they know that that was necessary for them due to the high risk. And do you think it will change practice, given that there's a financial incentive to freeze embryos? I, I hope it will change practice because I think it's a pity for the couple that they have to wait one or two months for the, fro for the freezing of the embryos. And after all, freezing is another, another, you can say, laboratory technique that we add to the cycle. So we, it becomes less natural, you can say, when you freeze the eggs. So if we can do a fresh embryo transfer, I think that that is the best. Anya, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for your interest. Anya Biskar-Pinborg is the Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. According to a new international study led by researchers at the Colling Institute in Sydney, Australia has the second highest prevalence of gout in the world next to New Zealand and just ahead of the United States. And the numbers have increased over by over 20% in the last 20 years or so. Gout's a painful condition with significant complications, so what's going on? Professor Lynn March is Head of Rheumatology at Royal North Shore Hospital and the Colling Institute. Welcome back to the Health Report, Lynn. 
thanks very much, Norman, and thanks for your interest in gout. Well, tell us what gout is. I mean, you think uh, of it as an 18th century problem, you know, Samuel Johnson or Samuel Pepys with their foot up on the stool with a big red sore toe. Yes, yeah, with the yeah the, those classic pictures of someone who has overindulged, overeaten, and overweight, and overimbibed. Uh, but uh, but gout is actually an overproduction of uric acid in the body. Everyone has some uric acid, but uh, in people uh, with gout, that becomes high, and the level itself doesn't cause any trouble. But it's actually the body's immune response to any crystals that get deposited, and so. But, typically in the joints, but we know that crystals can deposit in kidneys and heart and cause damage there. But um, So your, your white cells kind of see those crystals there and imbibe, ingest them, try to get rid of them, but then have this incredible uh, cytokine release and, and a very acute inflammation. So you, you feel that acute attack. Uh, and uh, fortunately, I've not had an acute attack, but those who do describe it as one of the most painful things ever. Uh, so it's, a, it, it's an inflammatory response in the tissues to the crystals. So cytokine attack, that sounds a bit, you know, people are used to that word now for, that phrase <laughs> yes. now for COVID-19. Is there any similarity yeah. to the cytokine attack? Well, well, it is in fact, it is that sort of cytokine. So cytokines are the, the chemicals that our immune system releases and then causes this very intense inflammatory response. So in unfortunately in COVID that occurs in people's lungs, but um, and it's a different, slightly different mechanism, but, but in gout it occurs in the joint and it, in and around a joint and is intensely, intensely painful with all the, the increase in blood flow and, and, and the increase in heat and, and inflammation. So people with gout more at risk of uh, serious COVID-19 disease if they get SARS-CoV-2? Ah, no, interesting question. And there has been a global rheumatology registry that's looked at this. And uh, people with gout do not appear to be at any increased risk of getting COVID, uh, which is good news. Uh, but if they do get it, because of the comorbidities they often have, it often goes hand in hand with high blood pressure, with diabetes, insulin resistance, um, and obesity, and being male, all of which are risk factors for having worse COVID. So uh, clearly, it's not a good idea for a gout patient to get COVID, uh, but it's not, um, they're not at increased risk of getting it in the first place. So we're not much more obese, probably less obese in the United States. Um, so is obesity the reason why it's going up so much? I mean, and why are we number two in the world? Yeah, combination of things. And we're really not that far behind the United States. And some of this is based on modelling and estimates. So I think it would be fair to say that we're pretty on par with the United States. Uh, but, you know, our, our obesity levels are, are similar. And it, it's all sort of caught up with the metabolic syndrome uh, that we're seeing more of. So um, that's large, that tummy, large tummy, high blood pressure, high insulin blood pressure. resistance and the ris yes. risk of diabetes. And and diabetes and the hyperuricemia and, and, and risk of heart attack, risk of stroke. And, and interestingly, the high level of uric acid in the blood, hyperuricemia, is an independent risk factor for uh, myocardial infarction and stroke. And so obviously if you have gout, it's worth being treated. So it helps not only prevent that acute attack, but it will prevent that long-term uh, long-term problems as well. And New Zealand has a, a, the, the highest um, incidence and prevalence uh, related to the Polynesian and Maori population. So it's sort of well um, documented uh, that they're at much higher risk uh, with uh, some of the, uh, the male uh, Maori population um, in the vicinity of, you know, 15, 20% even of the male population um, uh, having high, high uric acid. 
there, there, there's a lot of a lot of genetics and and, and some great work comes out of uh, from the New Zealand uh, researchers and epidemiologists and rheumatologists uh, looking at that. So they say prevention: cut back on your red meat and wine and um, and lose weight. Is that still the case? It, it is an important part of it, but uh, the, when you look at it, gout's probably. 40 to 60% genetic. So uh, you can, you, yes, you should modify your diet, uh, but uh, really if you're getting acute gouty attacks, you need drug therapy as well. You need a you need prescription medication. Uh, diet is important. Yes, reduce the triggers, reduce uh, alcohol, uh, beer, red wine, reduce the purine containing uh, foods. But that does, in, in the end, quite a minimal amount to your serum uric acid. It's really the urate lowering therapies that you uh, uh, that that you need to that you need to take. And if they and I think the important message is if they're taken uh, properly and well and and lifelong, um, you will uh, treat gout. You know, you, you'll manage and not cure the gout because you'll need long term medication, but certainly have it under control and and prevent those long term complications, the the chronic kidney disease that can develop and the uh, and the heart disease. What's the youngest person you've seen with gout? Ah, uh, well, I guess I guess for me in the twenties, but but I don't know. Maybe in your pediatric registrar days, you might might have seen some very, very rare genetic causes. That, so there are some very rare sort of X-linked inheritance of, um, of people who who have a overproduction of but uric with, acid. But but, but but we are now seeing actually. It's, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, it's a, a good point that uh, we're now. I mean, typically gout would occur in males in the sort of 40 to 60 bracket. Now we're seeing it in the 20s and 30s um, and perhaps because of, you know, childhood obesity and insulin resistance and, um, uh, you, you know, that, that we're starting to see those higher uric acid levels. Is there a case for being screened for high uric acid levels? At the moment, I'd say not, although it's an independent risk factor for developing heart disease and developing attacks of gout. We've not got any good evidence that treating just the high uric acid per se will prevent uh, the occurrence of those. Um, there, there's some very recent epidemiological data out of Taiwan would to suggest that more if you have gout and you take the uret-lowering therapies, you will prevent those chronic uh, morbidities. But um, just treating high uric acid on its own uh, is not what we need to do just yet. Lynn, thanks for joining us. Okay. Thank you, Norman. Professor Lynn Marge is Head of Rheumatology at Royal North Shore Hospital and the Calling Institute. And the reason she knows I was a paediatric registrar is that uh, Lynn was my resident. <laughs> With the total focus on COVID-19 over the last seven months, it's easy to forget that there are still massive killers out there globally and for which there are still no effective vaccines. One of these is malaria, and there's lots of it on our doorstep, and it may well work its way back into Australia with climate change. Papua New Guinea is experiencing a resurgence of malaria, and researchers at the PNG Institute of Medical Research and James Cook University have been trying to find out why. And bed nets might be a significant factor. Dr. Stefan Carl is at the Australian Institute of Tropical Health at James Cook University. Welcome to the Health Report, Stefan. Yes, hello. What's the dominant form of malaria in Papua New Guinea? Uh, so in Papua New Guinea, we see um, significant numbers of Plasmodium falciparum, um, but also Plasmodium vivax. So PNG is actually one of the uh, places with the most uh, Plasmodium vivax cases in the world. And falciparum is the really nasty one, which with a high death rate. That's what we tend to believe, yes. But um, recent research has also shown that P. vivax can be, you know, equally nasty, if you might say. 
Yeah. And what's been the extent of the resurgence in the last five years? Because it was Papua New Guinea was a bit of a success story with with malaria for a while, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, by 2014-15, it seemed as if, um, you know, PNG was well on track uh, uh, for, with malaria elimination. Um, but oh, in really? The last, yeah, yeah. Um, so case numbers had dropped, uh, you know, population average prevalence had dropped to below 1%. Um, but in the last uh, five years or so, they've seen a ninefold increase in, in case numbers in PNG. With what sort of impact on people? I mean, it's children who get a lot of malaria um, people don't realize that and they do die from it. Yeah, I mean, the, the highest risk groups, you know, for severe disease and death are children under under five in, in sub-Saharan Africa, but in PNG just as well. So what made you zero in on bed nets as the cause of this? Oh, well, I mean, I was the head of the entomology laboratory at the PNG Institute of Medical Research for for a long time. And so at, at uh, you know, that laboratory and, and the Institute of Medical Research, we have a focus on improving the health of people in PNG. This is sort of our mandate. And um, so that includes, you know, assisting the National Malaria Control Program. And since insecticide treated bed nets are, you know, the most important malaria control tool there um, in PNG and millions of these nets are distributed for free each year, um, you know, we consider this it um, to be one of our tasks to ensure that these nets are doing what they're supposed to do. And this is kill mosquitoes and protect people from malaria. To what extent should an insecticide impregnated bed net kill mosquitoes? Well, there are certain rules that the, or certain guidelines that the WHO publishes. Um, you know, but we believe that a new, completely new net uh, bed net out of the package um, should kill 100% of mosquitoes in these standardized tests that uh, that the WHO prescribes. So you went back and tested nets out of the, your brand new nets out of the package versus oh, yeah. older yeah. nets. What did you find? So, well, we basically really zoomed in on these new nets and and what happens in png is that these nets are being distributed um to you know the villages but sometimes people actually keep the nets in their original packaging and they store them away for later so we were actually able to find nets all the way back to 2007 that were still new and in their original packaging and so then we were able to test all of these nets from all of these different years using these standard tests um, that the who basically prescribes. And um, while conducting these tests, we noted that nets manufactured after 2012 showed a markedly reduced uh, potency to kill mosquitoes. Basically, all the nets with manufacturing dates from uh, before 2012 always killed 100% of mosquitoes in these experiments. And nets after uh, manufactured after 2012 only killed about 40% on average in experiments that were basically identical. And that led us to believe that the nets had changed. And at the same time, we saw malaria going through the roof in BNG. And what had changed? So, to be honest, uh, we don't exactly know this yet, but we are working on finding an explanation. Um, it, it's, you know, I can tell you that our results have now been confirmed in three other labs um, in Africa and also in Asia with different types of malaria mosquitoes. So we are quite sure that we are, we are, you know, um, we are seeing this thing. But to our surprise, the nets seem to contain the correct concentration of insecticide. Um, so, so something's changed our, in the manufacturing process. 
Well, yeah, our analyses indicate, so we really tried hard uh, so far, but we haven't been able to pinpoint it down. Our analyses indicate that there is a chemical composition change in the nets over the years, and that may hint towards changes in the manufacturing process. We also know that the manufacturer has made some changes, um, but um, I guess to find out the exact reasons, we need to do some more complex chemistry. Just, just very briefly, is the World Health Organization onto it? Because their quality control process is the one that's fallen down here. Yes, that's that's exactly what we're what we're saying. Um, we have informed um, the WHO and the funders of the Bednet program in PNG, as well as the manufacturer. Uh, we think that nets probably should be controlled more strictly. Um, and this is basically, I mean. You know what? What you have to realize is that this is not only a story about PNG, but this is this could have global ramifications yes. because uh, nets are being distributed. You know, hundreds of millions of nets are being distributed every year. Disturbing story, Stefan. Thanks very much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Dr. Stefan Carl is a senior research fellow at the Australian Institute of Tropical Health and Medicine at James Cook University in Queensland. I'm Norman Swan. This has been the Health Report, and I look forward to your company next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.